Welcome to the Be Free RE podcast, where you learn how to make your job optional. I'm your host, John, who's just getting started on his journey. But in the last year, I moved across the country, bought four apartments, make money as a landlord, no longer pay rent, and I have my first child. I'm joined by your co-host and my guide, Tony Angotti, who in five years quit his job and now manages over 80 units through a combination of house hacks, flips, and partnerships. So with that, let's jump into how you can do less of what you have to do and more of what you want to do. All right, Tony, welcome back. How's life? <laughs> I don't know. I, that's a bad restart. No, we're going to keep it going, man. This is great. I wasn't ready. Okay, whatever. Uh, well, I'm spending some time at the beach with my mother, so that's great. A uh, little time away. Oh, we're keeping my... this. Oh, we got to keep it, man. It was too fun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there you go. What a whammy. All right. You uh, you on the beach now, sipping Mai Tais, mm. chilling out? No, I'm in my brother's uh, room where there's bunk beds. <laughs> Are they shaped like race cars? No, slightly bigger. More crate and barrel. Less uh, pottery barn? What's the pottery barn kids? I don't know. Uh, I do you get race car bunk beds at pottery barn? I don't know. Where do you get them? That's, did yeah. you sleep in bunk beds growing up? I did. Actually, I had a loft. Mm. So it was like a lofted thing with a desk underneath because we didn't have a lot of space. You spoiled brat. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm so. just kidding. And then later, uh, obviously, I was like old. And I didn't want to sleep in the bunk bed. So we built the bottom bunk. <laughs> uh, so I like slept in a bunk bed still on like a plywood thing with a mattress on it. So I don't know if that counts as spoiled still. <laughs> you had a bed. I, oh, yeah. Perhaps you have me <laughs> one up here. I expect a very good story. I don't. I don't. I totally had a regular bed in my own room. Um, <laughs> however, I did sleep in bunk beds for a little bit with my brother and i was the top bunk was that was that like desirable or was that like you lost the battle he's my younger brother so i don't think there was a battle yeah. it was just kind of he can have the bottom bunk but maybe i had see i don't really remember now i don't know yeah they were not uh, those were ikea ones just straight like plain wood yeah. It was the che- cheapest version of Ikea bunk bed. Yeah, these are nice. These are, like, made out of the Trex decking material. Expensive. That stuff's expensive. Dude, it's I've like been four or five I square have, foot. Uh, it's crazy. Our back, I don't know, fire escape deck, whatever you call it, is rotting. And I'm planning on doing this job myself, um, replacing all the decking and all the rails and whatever Hmm. and the material to do treks is like ludicrous you pay i don't even remember what it was per board it was like a lot per just board yeah like over 20 dollars per board i think which is a ludicrous amount of money for composite decking yeah but i'm still gonna pay it not for treks but for whatever the i don't know facial tissue version of kleenex is (laughs) I understand. You're going to go with the, the project you're, you're, source version of Trex decking. You're picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. Oh, yeah. Nice. Big time. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Part of me is like, man, I should just collect all this plastic bottles, melt it down, and sell decking. That's basically how I think about things. But anyway, business venture. Okay. You're welcome, listeners. Work. Yeah, maybe. 
Um, well, today we have Yang calling, and he has some questions about the Burr method. I know this is your favorite topic to discuss. And then we also, we're going to continue to go through our mailbag here. And we have someone who, uh, a little further along in the process than our typical question, which should be exciting, but they have a portfolio and they are uh, looking for some advice on kind of what to do next. You know, I've hit 40 units, what do I do now? So with that, um, let's jump straight into Yang's question. I think that'll probably be the more interesting. Hey, my name is Yang. I'm from California. Um, I have a question regarding uh, getting started with real estate investing. Uh, for people just getting started uh, who has read about the BRRR, the BRRRR strategy, and um, what are some good ways to get started? And I wonder what na specific neighborhoods should people uh, target at it to successfully exercise the BRRRR strategy? I know it works for B neighborhoods and C neighborhoods, would that ever work in A neighborhoods? And what are some uh, advice you would guys give um, for people who are just getting started who are interested in this bird strategy? Thank you. Okay, so a couple questions there. Burrs, what is it? Would you recommend getting started? Does it work on A, B, and C class neighborhoods? We'll probably have to talk about what that actually means. And then how do you find a place where you can do bird deals? Those are my takeaways. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, you want to let's do some background so we can answer this right. What is the Burr strategy? So I, I think the Burr strategy is getting like highly uh, marketed by the bigger pockets, uh, tastemakers, <laughs> whatever we want to call them, real estate personalities. Okay. Now they're selling some books about it. And the idea is essentially you buy a property with, um, I, I guess ideally you're using investor money. Um, so essentially none of your own money. And then what you're going to do is you're going to repair it or rehab, re, rehab it. <laughs> uh, and then once you rehab it, you're going to rent it out and then you're going to refinance it and then you're going to repeat it. So you're going to buy like a distressed property with investor capital and then you're going to fix it up. And then because you have to do what's called like a, a settling period or uh, there's kind of seasoning, different work, yeah. seasoning period for, for a, a mortgage. You can't refinance it as soon as you, you know, you buy a house, let's say you fix it up the next day and it's worth 10 times what it used to be worth. You can't refinance it right away. The bank doesn't let you do that now. So you have to wait a little while, uh, typically a year, uh, sometimes a year, six months, but expect a year. So what you're doing in the meantime is you just rent the property out. Then your pers person who's renting the property should be paying the mortgage. And then you can refinance and you can get like a more traditional lending source, pay down your uh, private, your, your hard money lender, your private capital. And uh, you, in theory, you own a, ho own a home free and clear. So this is like, you know, who doesn't want a, an investment for no money down, right? This is very appet uh, appetizing. So everyone wants one of these. Yeah, it's not always going to be the investor capital like, you can do it with your own money and a loan, but a lot of the ways that the reason why people are interested is because they see it as a way to get started in real estate with no or low money down. Um, kind of the original people that started talking about it, which I wouldn't say they're the ones who founded it because it's been around in commercial real estate for a long time. But like even Brandon Turner says, 
like getting started without a cash cushion is not the best way to go but where a lot of people have started to like catch on to it and take it has been like you said you would use private or investor money which is not how i recommend to do it i don't think that that's even a good idea but um and some banks out there will do it with no seasoning period but you're absolutely right that it usually takes like six months to a year and that's kind of where you can get yourself in hot water like with appraisals like what if the market shifts while you have it or the comps that you looked at when you bought the property are going to be different when you go to refinance so mm -hmm. using like all hard money can get a little i don't know iffy and then the other thing to clarify is he mentions like, like neighborhood classes like a b c and then a lot of times people talk about d class one thing that i always say with the neighborhood classes is like keep in mind that this is very subjective like everybody that you talk to is going to have a slightly different definition of what that means to them mm -hmm. generally speaking a class is either they're going to be like your most valuable neighborhoods so it's either going to be very trendy or very good school district or very something the property values are going to be high the rents are going to be high you're going to have very high income earners usually pretty professional tenants that sort of thing mm -hmm. b class is kind of like a little bit less usually going to be like more middle income um still like low crime decent school district fairly walkable fairly trendy but not like the nicest neighborhood in a particular metro area C-class, usually you'll hear people say like C-class is going to be still low to moderate crime, so not a high crime area, but it's also going to have like lower income usually, more kind of uh, like service type job people, that sort of thing. So that's going to be a lot of the like types of tenants that you'll get. So you'll have to, you know, be a little bit more willing to work with credit a lot of the times. The tenants aren't going to have as high of an income. The schools are going to be below average to average. Um, the areas might be gentrifying a little bit, but usually they're just kind of like working class neighborhoods. Uh, and then on the lowest end, which people usually talk is like D class neighborhoods. Those are going to be like your high crime areas, low income, mostly subsidized housing, um, kind of like the least valuable neighborhoods. But so if you do put together a good system, you can still find good tenants there. Mm -hmm. You, you know, the quality of tenants that you have is more a product of your own screening and your own marketing than it is on the neighborhood. But if you're in a D-class neighborhood, you might have to wait a little bit longer to find that quality tenant through your marketing just because your pool is going to be, you know, it's, you're going to have to finagle a little bit more to get people to qualify to rent. So that's generally how investors classify like D through a class. But then within that, I think a lot of the times people get in trouble is like they take some people will say like, there'll be a lot of people who say what I might consider a D class neighborhood. There's people that will say it's a C class neighborhood or what I would consider a C class neighborhood. People will say it's a B class neighborhood. So I think when someone's selling you something, they're always going to say that it's a higher classification neighborhood than it really is i think a lot of the times um so the real point here is that you need to kind of come up with your own criteria for different neighborhoods rather than just blindly trust what somebody else says 
because it's so subjective and could be just based on the particular person you're talking to's understanding of the neighborhood. Like maybe the neighborhood has turned around since they last thought about it. It's very subjective. Does that make sense? Did I? Yeah, no, I, t- I do totally... the concept justice. Yeah. And I think kind of how this neighborhood classification ties into the Burr method in general, my, I don't want to say my experience, but well, I, I have some experience looking for Burr deals. And essentially what you're looking for is a very dilapidated property. You're looking for a deal. Um, and usually a deal comes with someone who's mismanaged the property or let it go. And you can almost think of like, well, what is a let it, you know, when, when you're in a class A neighborhood, what does it mean someone let it go? It probably means someone, you know, got old in the house. So the bathroom is powder blue with flower wallpaper and, you know, <laughs> this is what like a distressed house in a, in a class A neighborhood looks like, right? Whereas you can imagine in a class D neighborhood, a distressed house might literally be like a full teardown, you know, uh, and in the, mm-hmm. in the MLS listing, you'll say something like a contractor's dream. That means, <laughs> uh, and it, probably not actually a burr opportunity, right? But that's like, you know, that's kind of what you're looking for. Uh, you know, I think on the, on the B and C area, uh, that, you know, you can find stuff that's, um, perhaps a little more in the middle of those two, obviously. Uh, but in general, that's, that's kind of what you're looking for. You're looking for a deal for the neighborhood that you're going to be able to re re you know, rehab the property and improve the value, you know, force the appreciation on the property. So you need something that, you know, maybe you can buy two adjoining lots and combine them. Maybe there's kind of creative solutions you can have to burr things, but um, in general, what I what I see and hear people talking about is, you know, they somebody who's behind on their taxes, or you know, someone whose uh, parents owned a place and they passed, and the kids just want to get rid of it, or you know, something to that effect is essentially kind of key to the to the burr strategy is finding the deal. Yeah. So generally speaking, I think that the thing that you said that's the most important is that it isn't really like a neighborhood thing. It's more just a deal thing. However, if you ask, like, where is the best place to find bird deals? I find the best place is usually in, like, C-class neighborhoods. Um, Stuff that's not high income. Because what happens is with these kind of deals is number one on the competition side, if you have a house that has a lot of potential upside, enough to refinance out your, and we should say that's the primary goal of the Burr strategy is to refinance all your capital that you put into the property. So get all your money out so that you can recycle to the next thing. If you find a house with that much value add, that much potential equity that you can refinance out, you're gonna be competing on that same property with people who are gonna flip the property and homeowners that want to buy a property and add value to it and all that sort of thing. And that applies to all neighborhoods, but it applies even more to B-class and A-class neighborhoods because that's where people are looking to do those sorts of projects. The other issue with the B-class and the A-class neighborhoods, I think, is that the reason why the birth strategy is challenging, the reason why it's become harder and harder to execute in a seller's market is because not only do you need the property to work as far as purchase expense, purchase plus renovation, 
refinance all that money out, no money left in the property. You need to it to work as close as you can for that, but you also need the cash flow to work out on the backside. So if you have a property that you may have been able to refinance all the money out, it might be worth $320,000 now. But if you're only getting $2,200 a month in rent, you're underwater. And that's what I see a lot with the like A-class Burr strategy deals is that your value is too high on the back end to make money renting it. Which so in that case, just flip the house. I right. mean, but in the C-class neighborhoods, you see a lot more where it works as far as a value add refinance out type deal. And it also works on the back end whenever you get those rents up and now you can still cash flow. Um, that's if you're using other people to source your deals for you, which is really where this comes into play in the market, at least in the seller's market that we're in right now across most of the country, finding deals is very challenging. So to rely on someone else to find a bird deal for you, like a perfect one is not, not very commonplace. So, I mean, as an agent, I can find bird deals that you'll get most of your money out, but even not competing with people on smaller deal stuff, I'm not really finding that many where it's like a full cash out thing. The market's just too hot. It, they're not really out there. Even on the like off market side that's getting marketed back to people like wholesale or whatever, you're still really not seeing it to where they're perfect deals. The only people that I know that are still executing it with any volume, not just like one off here, one off there, that sort of thing, are people who are sourcing the deals themselves. They're out there marketing with people or they're marketing, they're networking with people that might have the houses. They're doing that sort of thing. Just because the market is so tight, it's really hard to find the deals that work. It's a, as we've talked about the burst strategy before, it's a useful tool to have in your tool belt for when it comes up. But the way that the market is right now, if it's your only tool and your only plan, you're just not going to be growing very rapidly right now unless you're sourcing these deals yourself. Um, I mean, I would love to say that I had a ton of bird deals that everybody could just execute perfectly, but at least in my market, that's not really, not really a thing. I just don't have like bird deals to just give to everybody like Oprah. Here's a deal. 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 Um, I'll also say that it's a lot easier to execute in the single family space than it is in the two to four unit space, at least in Pittsburgh. Um, and I suspect in other markets where there aren't as many two to four unit buildings that are cookie cutter. The reason is that on a single family house, your appraisal at the end is very predictable. When you do the Burr strategy and you're picking neighborhoods, you want to pick neighborhoods that have a lot of very similar houses because then you can actually predict on the out what your house will appraise for. If you get a very unique house or you get a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, there's only so many properties that the appraiser on the, on the refinance part can use to comp you. So those are going to change all the time. Like if you're refinancing a duplex, there may have only been two that sold in the past 180 days in your, sub in your subdivision. So 
if those two aren't good comps, that's going to kill your value. That happens all the time. So if you're going to do the burst strategy as your main thing, my advice in summary would be target C-class neighborhoods where the prices work for the value add and they also work for the cash flow on the back end and also target houses very cookie cutter, houses that just will have easy comps all day. Nothing weird, no strange house, no community that's full of totally different places. Just get cookie cutter stuff that can be easily valued. Yeah, I think sometimes it's helpful to think like, what would the perfect uh, house look like for this, right? It would be like a C-class mm -hmm. neighborhood that's up and coming where like, you know, young people want to be and there's model comps of the house. Model comp meaning the builder built multiple versions of this house, maybe with a couple different layouts, but they're almost, you know, all identical. So it's in like some neighborhood. You can imagine like some suburb where, you know, there's whatever, 150 of this, like roughly the same house. So you know almost exactly what you're going to get. You know, maybe you have a corner lot and they don't, but, you know, you, you know exactly what, you know, your house is essentially appraising for. Uh, so that's, that's like, you know, and you, you can look at that on, you know, when you're doing your homework on the internet, you can actually see like how unique is this property? Uh, I think to Tony's point about the appraisal risk on the, on the backside of things. Unfortunately, that's just not always the most common thing in the market that it might not be in the market that you're in. I mean, in Pittsburgh, it's like the closer to the city you are, there's very few of the same house. Yeah. Like they're just all slightly different. The older neighborhoods are like that. So it's a little bit harder to predict that appraisal value in an older house. Agreed. All right. Um, so I guess I, f I feel like you already summarized. You, you did a great I job. I did your job. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, let's jump into nice. the mailbag here. We have a question fr from, Hockey fan, 2002, uh, and wants to know... Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> uh, started buying distressed single family in 11 and 12, 2011, 2012, in the Midwest. Uh, the numbers made sense. I never thought I would see the appreci appreciation that I have now. My houses have doubled, and some have even tripled. I'm getting monthly cash flow around 17k per month. Uh, a lot of people always say start paying your mortgage down aggressively. Uh, how should I think about what I'm doing now that prices are high, even though deals do come up? Uh, which, where do I go from here? There's a lot of options. I mean, this yeah. is like, what do you what's what do you say all the time? This is like champagne problems. It is a little bit of champagne problems. <laughs> I, I think it does come down to like, so what is, you know, what is your ambition? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, why are you owning houses? You know, are you, are you trying to kind of build like a real estate legacy here where you want to have something to pass on to your peers or your heirs? Or are you trying to build a company because you enjoy building? Uh, I'm guessing not if you're asking this question. So, uh, you know, I almost feel like I have to like look into the crystal ball a little bit and say like, well, what, what type of person asked this question? And yeah. So maybe that's not, you know, other than this person, just to give two perspectives, like if you had this, what would you do? 
because you're in a different situation than me so we'll both have our own individual answers probably so like if you had 40 houses not paid off this person's situation what would you do with it i mean so to me real estate is always a means to an end right like uh i enjoy what we do but i you know i i essentially do this so that i can have more free time and be unencumbered uh so i don't have appointments so i would try and essentially optimize for quality of life from here so you know if i have 40 houses all over the city uh i would pretty seriously considering consider consolidating them into actually one building so like a 32 apart 32 unit apartment complex or something of that rough size probably larger than that if you already have 40 single family homes and i try and get it in like one or two buildings actually and really consolidate it down and uh try and build like a, a solid system where um I'm less involved in it, if that makes sense. And that that would be mm-hmm. kind of my ambition at that point. Uh, you know, I might might look at like 1031-ing a couple of them into like a vacation home or something like that. Something that mm-hmm. is a little more quality of life. But, uh, but, you know, I guess for context, like I have kids. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would want to keep some money and... Um, make sure that we had cash flow coming in so I could pay for their college or whatever comes up. But like, you know, if I was making 17 K a month, I realize that's cash flow, probably not profit, but you know, if I was making eight or nine K a month in profit, uh, that would be sufficient for what I, for what I need. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I definitely see your perspective as far as like trading them all into one bigger building. I I think that my plan would be similar, but executed differently. So if I had 40 single family houses, I would try to do the same thing. Like I would reduce complexity. And the uh, question asker brought up an interesting topic that is, you know, um, they said, like, they've always heard that you should pay off debt, right? And the reason why you pay off the properties, even though you get a lower return um, on your on your equity, you'll always get a higher return on investment by having them leveraged, um, just the nature of the beast, like you'll get a higher return on your equity. But the positive to paying them off is just lower complication, like your risk goes down, you sleep easier at night, it's not as big of a deal. Like if something happens, you don't have anybody that's going to take it from you as long as you can still pay your taxes. Um, so in, in this case, I would reduce complexity by selling half of the portfolio. Assuming you're local, I would sell half of it, use the proceeds from the sales, um, to just pay down the other half of the portfolio and get all those properties to just no debt. And then, that half of the portfolio would my total cash flow would probably be similar yeah. assuming you eliminate the other mortgages that's probably not the best thing like tax strategy wise like if i'm really trying to optimize returns yeah you want a 1031 it or you want to like refinance money out and take money to then reinvest or grow or whatever but like you, I've always kind of viewed real estate as like, uh, I like it. It's interesting, but ultimately it's just a way to make my life easier Mm -hmm. to provide financial freedom. 
and where this person is in their juncture in life, I would really want to have that financial freedom and selling half of it to pay off the rest of the portfolio would be the easiest, easiest way to decomplicate or whatever the word is for that decomplicate simplify simplify yeah there you go you're master of uh language i can decomplicate Um, any word exactly i uh i was at somebody's house the other day and they had a high chair and i was telling them to move it for pictures for the listing and i was like can you please move the uh the uh the eating chair the the eating (laughs) they were like the high chair and i was like yeah yeah the the high chair Um, (laughs) but yeah so i would sell them and then you would own this portfolio free and clear. Ideally, you would own the portfolio in like a company or some kind of liability shield so that you don't own 20 properties free and clear. Make yourself a target for some Slipping aggressive lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then that's what I would do because then my life would be nice and easy. I would just bring all, assuming you're local, I would bring, I would keep all the ones that are closer to me and then do that my other option that i would probably do if you actually push came to shove and i had the situation and i am as old as i am like i'm 31 no kids i would just keep them all i wouldn't do anything (laughs) i would just keep them wait till they're paid then just hang on to it and just let it keep appreciating i mean even if the market goes down i hopefully have more than 30 years left to live so all my stuff is going to get paid off at some point and it's going to be worth way more than it is now. So at my juncture in life, I would probably keep them if push came to shove. But if I was older, I would definitely just sell, pay off the debt, hang on to half of it, live off the same cash flow, have less risk and have less headache. I, and single family homes, the nice thing about them is that you usually get more stable tenants, so it's less work. But yeah yeah i mean um it, for me it's it's really hard to answer this question without like knowing like well what's annoying in their life you know like but mm-hmm. my overall impression is like you're, you're at a chapter now where you know champagne problems are here for you so <laughs> you, you have to figure so drink out up. yeah i mean like <laughs> minimize your toil you know like what what part of yeah. this don't you enjoy because I'm sure there's some part of it. So if you really love hunting for deals and that's like something you really enjoy, then I would keep that in the process, right? Because it's fun. So I would just, uh, I don't know, without, at the risk of selling like a life coach, I would like look at what part of this stuff like gives you energy and makes you energized. And what part do you feel like drained, you know, drained of and just try to mm-hmm. minimize the draining stuff and maximize the fun stuff. Like, congrats. I don't know what else to say. You're, you was this a humble brag? Was that all that this question was? was I don't just know. Like a, a I, humble brag. I will say, I think for the readers, it's or listeners, the readers. I think it's it, it is kind of nice for the listeners to hear. You know, here's someone who started eight to nine years mm-hmm. ago, and now essentially they like they broke out of like the rat race, like mm-hmm. super possible, and like I mean, you know, yeah, ten years is a long time, but like you know, it's longer. 35 years so yeah (laughs) pretty cool i mean congrats realistically like you start working out of college what like 45 years till you retire from a day job yeah yeah that sucks (laughs) yeah 
I mean, and like, <laughs> so the faster, I mean, 10 years is like nothing compared to that. Yeah. And I mean, now this person, like if they want to, they can keep doing it. You know, you have optionality, yeah. which is a great problem. So for sure. Yeah. Uh, embrace it. I don't know. That's the recap. Tony, yeah. t- Tony would sell half the portfolio and just like sleep well at night. Uh, or do nothing. Yeah, or do nothing. And then I would probably, like, I think where we both overlap, we're just trying to minimize the complexity, you know, optimize mm-hmm. for quality of life, simplicity. So for me, that's like having one building to go to, all the toilets are the same, property manager, <laughs> one spot, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I like we, how you pick all the toilets being the same. That's like the one thing you want. You want all champion 17s because <laughs> this is going to be year like 20. 2070 and they'll be up to the champion 17 toilet they'll be able to flush 30 golf balls at once <laughs> well uh yeah uh, yeah no no possums in your building or Maybe. will there be possums in your building do you have uh, a room have you like tamed possums hmm. uh I, I'm no, possum, no fleas I, i'm possum free man you're the you're the possum extraordinaire that's true wrangler wrangler no you have a wrangler on staff but not on my staff but not he, yet uh, he's available that's true hopefully <laughs> i don't need one that would be a bad day uh, hiring possum expert for regular work boy that i just want to read the craigslist ad for that that'll be gold um <laughs> well with that tony let's roll into uh what's something you learned this week something that i learned this week i'm just gonna do the usual and tell you to go first okay we can I see how it is. That's fair. Yeah. Um, boy, I, so I'm torn between two different what I learned. But I guess, man, I guess the simple one would be like a coat of paint goes so far in your house. Like the the difference that fresh paint and some spackle makes on how a place looks is just incredible and it's it's hard to underscore like you know you go into a place and even if like we've already done this once before so we you know we kind of have this mindset of like what a quote-unquote good deal looks like you know like yeah really ugly wallpaper and you know like uh, that gross yellow wall color like all that is great uh, or the gross yellow vinyl square flooring. But you kind of like forget that once you start walking through it. But we just painted our place. We like did the ceiling a flat white. We do gray walls. You know, all the stuff that's in right now. White trim, blah, blah, blah. And the place just looks so new. We also put in some new flooring. But like just those changes have like, I mean, my wife like loves the house that we're living in now. You know, and before it was like disgusting. She hated it. <laughs> And like, I mean, it's just paint, you know, and yeah, it's like really easy to do. I mean, it takes time, but it's, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it's unbelievable what, you know, fresh paint does to a place. Um, and you'll be happy to know. I also installed a ceiling fan. I didn't spray paint nice. black. <laughs> so. um, there's also, I think like when you do that work yourself in your own house, not only does it look nice, but you also feel like a personal sense of pride looking at it. 
Yeah, that's true. So, like, I think they did it. IKEA did a study a, a long time ago where they had like do people like products that they purchased that are more expensive more than products that they assembled themselves. And most people actually like the product that they assembled themselves more than they like the more expensive pro products. And the reason is just because there's like pride in knowing that they did it. So even though spray painting a black ceiling fan or spray painting a ceiling fan black probably looks terrible, you probably <laughs> think it looks great because you did it yourself. Oh man, so much shade. <laughs> What'd you use? Did you use Rust-Oleum or did you use an off-brand? No, I used a 99 cent black enamel. So you didn't even go premium on the spray paint? Well, I did, but it's because I ran out of the enamel. But uh, okay, I mean, it's a ceiling it. fan. No one's going to touch it. It just spins around and collects dust. Hopefully somebody replaces it. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> trash in your ceiling fan idea. So totally what I learned no is a little bit more introspective. <laughs> um, no regrets. Oh, boy. Um, so what I learned is a little bit more introspective. I um, I met up with two investors that I'm friends with today. Uh, and the other guy and I had both quit our jobs to do investing. Like we hit a certain point and we didn't think it made sense to work our day jobs anymore. And the other guy that we meet up with pretty regularly, he still works his regular job. Um, he has enough properties and enough going on that he probably could quit. But I think that there's a little bit of like fear holding him back, that yeah. sort of thing. And he's in a position right now where he could sell one of his buildings and use that as like a financial runway to mm -hmm. quit. And I'm usually of the opinion, I know that we had that other question before, but typically I'm of the opinion, like don't sell. Yeah. Like just keep it. You're always going to go up in value over a long enough time frame. I mean, you might have dips, like the market does go down, but as long as you believe in capitalism and you believe in real estate in general, the value will go up over time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so normally I feel that way, but in his case, it's like, he doesn't like his job. He wants more time to spend with his kids. He wants all these things. And he's like, this job, you know, pays a decent amount of money. So it's like, why, why stay? I mean, just sell the building, use that as your financial runway and just pull the plug. I know that when I quit my job, I was like so worried that like all the money in my bank account would evaporate. I would never be able to make money. I mean, I spent time building up my realtor business before I quit, but it was like, I was so nervous about it. And I probably stayed at my job for a year and a half longer than I should have. And not only would I have made more money going out and doing something on my own, but I'm just so much happier now that I don't have the commute and going to work and everything that if I would have just taken it sooner, nothing bad would have happened um, and just would have been leading a better life before, because that's like, what do they say? I mean, not they, but it's just true. Like the only resource that you don't get back is time. Mm -hmm. I mean, so why keep wasting it doing something that you don't want to do when there's this opportunity to go do something that you want to do. And that doesn't mean like just willy nilly quit your job when you have nothing planned out. But if you're in a situation where you could quit, I learned when I did quit my job, 
how easy it is to go out and make money. Like if I was really in a bind, I could go rent apartments for people. Nobody likes renting apartments. You can make a full month's rent renting apartments for people. Like you get a new lease, you rent it. So you could probably cover your bills literally just leasing apartments if you wanted to. If you're at all handy, there's nobody that's handy anymore. You can go fix stuff for people for money. You can go deliver materials. You can go do anything to make money. Like it's, you could be an agent, you could be a property manager, you could be whatever. And those are just real estate things because that's mostly what I think about. But there's so many opportunities out there to make money that I don't think it's, unless you like your job, if you hate your job and you build even a sort of like a, even a small position with real estate or investments or whatever to help you get out of it, like I wouldn't stay too, like too long, just get over the fear and just pull the plug. Because if you're already thinking about quitting and that sort of thing, like life's too short to waste it doing stuff that's meaningless. So I don't know. That's just my own (laughs) insight from that conversation. Like, here's a guy that's in a really good position to just leave what he doesn't like to do. And he's not doing it because of something in his brain holding him back. And it's partly legitimate. Like, you know, he's at a point in his life where that insecurity of not having a job maybe isn't the best thing, but I'm fully confident that he could just quit and figure it out and probably be better off doing his own thing than he would be continuing on the path that he's on. So to anybody that's listening that's in that situation, I would just just pull the plug and go do your own thing and you'll be totally fine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's I mean, uh to like agree with you, I think there's you know, that attitude of risk aversion is probably what made him a very good investor. Right? So it's hard because the skill that has made you very successful in this one chapter of your life um perhaps is inhibiting you in another. And that that can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, you know, courage is in much shorter supply than intelligence nowadays. And, you know, sometimes you just have to be willing to, like, get after it. And, yeah, I mean, it's not like you don't turn into this, like, untouchable if you quit your job. You know, they might even take you back. You can always go back, yeah, Yeah. to a different thing or whatever. But I just didn't – I don't think I realized before I quit how easy it is to just, like, as long as you're willing to work at doing something, like – you can make money not being employed by someone else. Like it's, I don't know. It's a weird concept to think about if you're not a, cause I was never like an entrepreneur prior to anything or I was yeah. just always like a W2 earner. And I was like, well, if I don't have any money, I need to go work for someone else. And it's like, that's not true at all. You'll make more money doing most anything on your own than you will <laughs> working for somebody else. Anyway, as long as you have drive and you work hard and whatever, but I imagine everybody listening to our podcast has that attitude. Yeah, it's uh yeah. It's in the United States I would say the complicating factor is often healthcare. So you, you have to oh, think yeah, about yeah. that a little bit, but it's um I I know very few people who have like made the transition like you're describing that are like, "Boy, I really regret trying to start, you know, start my own thing." And I know yeah, tons I should of have people. stayed at my job longer. Yeah, like, I mean, everyone. Yeah. Anyway, even people that I know that tried and failed, they're still glad that they 
tried and they went out and got another job as soon as it didn't work out. Like I know a guy who opened up a coffee place and it didn't work out. He yeah. sold all the equipment and just went and got a job. It also makes you more appreciative. Then you're like, wow, I get paid vacation days. Like it's, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. wild. Like, yeah, it's, um, I mean, yeah, it can cost you some money, but it sounds like this person is in a position where they need to really look at things. Well, that's, uh, very nice positive philosophical one to end on i think so yeah. with that uh yeah thanks for listening to the be free re podcast where are they gonna call us they gotta call us they gotta call us for questions you gotta plug it you gotta plug it you gotta plug it what is it four one two two one two eight three six six isn't that it did i say it wrong is that no, not it that's perfect man four one that's two, it two one two eight three six six four say it again no just kidding don't <laughs> yeah All right, we're good we need a jingle all right well see you guys later thanks for listening that's it for this week's episode check us out on instagram at bfreere on the web at www.bfreere.com and give us a call with your name where you're calling from and what your question is 412-212-8366 catch you next time